Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to educate, but to entertain and teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. The asterisk. It's a wonderful thing. It allows you to take all sorts of liberties as long as you're willing to take a little more risk than you normally would. In fact, I think the asterisk saved the whole darn session today, with the averages opening down a bit before they came roaring back. Dow only gaining 435 points, S&P jumping 1.84%, and Nasdaq surging 2.69%, led by a bunch of asterisk companies. All right, what the heck am I talking about? Let me explain. This morning, right after Squawk on the Street began, we were handed a news release, which had some revised numbers for the quarter from none other than software and web king Microsoft. As you can only imagine, in this treacherous environment, their visions were not good, not good at all. It seems that because of currency fluctuations, namely the strong dollar, Microsoft would not be able to meet the estimates. I turned to my partner, David Faber, and said, we saw what that happened. The exact same thing happened the other day with Salesforce.com when it reported. And it didn't matter. So it shouldn't matter now. But I immediately also acknowledged that we have to go through the whole torture of a decline, perhaps a hideous one, before people realize that you can asterisk the currency, that it just doesn't matter. David then said what matters, of course, is there's demand. And obviously there's demand even at these exalted dollar levels, which is actually even better. Sure enough, Microsoft stock opens hideously and then sheds as much as, not, as 10 points until it stabilizes. Next thing you know, the stock starts to trade higher. And by the time I did my 12 o'clock CMEC investing call, it was only down four points. I pounded the table hard on the asterisk revision. A type of shorthand for saying this number cut doesn't count. By the end of the day, the stock's actually up a couple of bucks and helps lead the market higher. To me, after months and months where everything has been viewed with negativity, this U-turn in the stock of Microsoft is incredibly important for you. I say that because this is down the third time in a week where Wall Street was willing to overlook textbook bad news. Asterisk it away. The first happened last week when I was away. NVIDIA reported solid first quarter results, the chip company, but gave much lower than expected guidance for the second quarter. The stock was looking down horribly. It opened down nearly 10 bucks, but quickly reversed, and then it ultimately advanced 5% that day. It could rally because management did a very good job explaining how the shortfall was caused by China's lockdown. If they weren't able to sell anything over there, and they couldn't make some stuff either, then how can we count? How can that count against them? Yet they still came pretty close to making the numbers. It was really extraordinary. 
In other words, the market actually asterisked the China lockdown. The market accepted that China's zero COVID policy could cause NVIDIA to miss the numbers. Not any shortage of demand. This is a radical departure from where we were as recently as two weeks ago. Remember when Cisco got pummeled for saying pretty much the exact same thing? Apple's been trading down endlessly on China. Think about Nike, Ugh, Starbucks even. Can you imagine if we're willing to asterisk their China, Chinese misfortunes? But by the time NVIDIA reported, Wall Street had a new, much more positive attitude. It shifted. Then there was the alleged debacle of Salesforce.com. As soon as the company reported, the stock headed down because they so-called cut the revenue forecast. But go listen to CEO Mark Benioff when he came on the show. Go listen when his conference call and he explained the forecast cut. He described an insane world where it's incredibly cheap to be a tourist in Japan, joyous even. But if you sell software in Japan, you get your head handed to you because the Japanese central bank has gone all in on debasing its currency in order to drum up business. When people realized that Salesforce's lowered forecast would still be above what analysts were looking for, notice they added it back, the stock soared. And just like NVIDIA, the stock has never looked back. And as I told members of the club on my noon call, it's still way too cheap. It can still go much, much higher. So now we have to wonder, has the psychology of the market truly changed? Ever since the Fed started talking tough in November, this market has turned heinous. Pretty much everything except for energy or the utilities, where there's nothing to asterisk except for a let's say, a rare, errant state regulator. We've had to endure endless declines based on port congestions, trucker shortage. We've had to bear the overtime cost for COVID, some workers to fill in for absentee colleagues. We've taken pain and pain and pain, having to fly in goods from China because the port fiasco means ships take too long. It's been an endless parade of excuses and apologies, no asterisk in sight. But I think that slowly we're discovering that at these reduced levels for stocks, Wall Street's now willing to accommodate these shortfalls that were that are, let's say, called the beyond management's control. Now, will the market look back and reevaluate? If Cisco report here today, right now, I think its stock wouldn't have been shelled nearly as hard. Maybe not at all. I believe the Best Buy stock might have soared, given everything you could say an asterisk in that quarter. I'm not saying management will get a free pass when they drop the ball in terms of execution. My charitable trust is still smarting from the problems at PayPal. Nice rally today, thank heavens. And American Eagle Alphers, as those who listen to today's club know all too well when I beat myself up about them. But I'm starting to believe that this previously unforgiving market has found a level where it can forgive and even forget. So why is that? Is it because we've had a, you know, some less than smoking hot date of late, some weaker housing numbers, some not too steam and jobless claims? Maybe, but I think the data still indicates we need a bunch of additional rate hikes. Is it because we're beginning to believe that China has COVID under control? Maybe, but who knows with COVID? How many times have we thought we have beaten it and then the darn thing pops right back? I think it's something else entirely. See, we're finally at the point in the stock cycle, not the economic cycle, but the stock cycle, where the underwriters underwriters are no longer pumping out the bilge, these lethal IPOs for which there's no appetite whatsoever. They've stopped flooding us with new supply. Enough money's been lost in the new. Why go back? Why not just go back to the old? Most of the stocks that have become public in the last few years can only be described as abysmal, if not downright disgraceful, especially these miserable, shameful SPACs. You couldn't asterisk their mistakes. In many cases, the whole enterprises were a mistake. Often, they should never come public. It was only the greed of the venture capitalists who funded them and the investment bankers who got these great deal cuts that inflicted these deals on you, which is why I spend so much time warning you away from them, even if, as it became, uh, I became a bit of a scold. The point, though, is that the recent IPOs are falling by the wayside. They're, they're going away. They're dwindling. 
Sure, you get the occasional rebound like we saw in Chewy, which reported a pretty solid quarter last night, although technically Chewy came public in 2019, much more legitimate than the IPO class from 2021. So many of those companies are simply not going to be given a second chance because they won't have enough money to get back on course and suddenly a lot more difficult to fundraise. The lack of new broken the moment you buy its stocks and the horrendous declines in very valuable companies have coalesced to create an environment where Wall Street's willing to overlook some of the imperfections. Not all, but some. Once you realize that you're free to overlook a blemish or two, and because the stocks have been so crushed in anticipation of multiple rate hikes, you can be bold enough to buy a discounted product without much hesitation. I think we finally reached that level. Bottom line, the asterisk is back. As long as the asterisk in question passes the NVIDIA, Salesforce, Microsoft tests, then you're free to do some buying. Let's go to Jeremy in South Dakota, please. Jeremy. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Hey, good info on the investment club today, so thank you. You're quite welcome. Uh, I bought into Airb back in April when it was in the high 140s. Bought some more after you had uh, CEO Brian Chesky on. Um, had a lot of good to say about it. Uh, huge first quarter with 70% increase in revenues as traveling was coming back. Uh, obviously, they've kind of stayed around the 120 range and lower here lately. Is it one of those you uh, sit on and wait, buy some more, or get rid of? Okay, this is one of the few, actually maybe maybe one of four or five, that I actually say you can buy because the cash flow at Airbnb is extraordinary. They are making a ton of money, but people don't seem to understand how to read a balance sheet. I think Airbnb is a buy. Let's go to Josh in Florida, please. Josh. Hi, Jim. Booyah. I'm talking about Norwegian Cruise Lines. It's about 70% below its pre-virus high, and they recently announced strongest bookings month ever. Is it time to get on board? Well, look, I, I, I'm not recommending any stocks that, that, uh, of companies that are losing money right now. There's too many companies that are making a lot of money. I don't want to do it. If you want, uh, look, Norwegian is my favorite in the group, but I am not recommending money losers anymore. It's cost too much money for people when there's so many companies making fortunes. Drin in Wisconsin, Drin. Jimmy, a big bulk and booyah. First time, long time, buddy. I'm liking this. I'm liking this. Where are you going? Quick shout out to the Slow Rug group chat and a happy birthday to my cousin Dennis. Yeah, Question definitely. Is for the chill man, Data Dog. Two good back to back quarters, good revenue, good growth, decent amount of cash on hand. What are we thinking? Data I think Dog. That, look, I agree with you. It's just that it sells at 150 times earnings. It is a very good company. It just happens to be too expensive. The stock's expensive, the company's great. And that's the way it is. Guys, we have to asterisk things. In other words, the asterisk is back. You can overlook a blemish or two. You can say, wait a second, that may not be as important as we think. That's called an asterisk. As long as the asterisk passes the NVIDIA, Salesforce, Microsoft test, you are free to do some buying. Man, buddy, tonight, Wall Street fury of potential Fed-mandated recession. What should you make of a company like Dow? Does it deserve an asterisk? I'm checking in with the CEO. Then Deere got crushed after earnings, so is it time to circle back to the farm equipment maker? I'm going to give you my take. And I found a glimmer of green in this otherwise difficult market. Don't miss my exclusive ahead of Accelerate Energy. And stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. 
Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is Constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to Indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What do we do with the stocks of the big industrials now that Wall Street's just terrified of a potential Fed-mandated recession? Take Dow, the chemical powerhouse, with a stock that's done very well this year, as they've got enough pricing power to offset their own rising costs, not to mention a cheap stock, battle for 4.1% dividend yield. Year-to-date Dow's rallied from the mid-50s to the high 60s, even after the big market-wide pullback in April and early May. It's only down about four bucks from its highs. However, just since last Monday, this stock has been hit with three separate analyst downgrades. They're not listening. They took it from buy to hold. So what do we do with the stock of Dow? Is it time to declare victory and ring the register, or is this one worth sticking with uh, because the recession worries might be overblown or the company just might be able to beat it anyway? How about we talk to management directly? Let's take a close look with Jim Fiddley. He's the bankable chairman and CEO of Dow. He made you so much money. Help figure out the story. Mr. Fiddley, welcome back to Mad Money. Great to be here, Jim. Nice to see you in person. Yes, it is great. Now, Jim, this is a conundrum. People feel that you have to sell a cyclical stock no matter what when the Fed tightens, because what the Fed wants to do is tamp down inflation, and you've been a beneficiary of inflation. What do you say to shareholders who are saying, you know what, I don't want to let go of my Dow. I've made too much money. Don't want to play the capital gains. Well, what we've said to them and, and what we did last year was really worked hard on the balance sheet to get ourselves ready for an environment like this. Uh, we've improved our debt position. We don't have any maturities until the end of 2026. All of our interest rate, our financial debt is fixed rate. So we're ready for that type of an inflationary environment. And we just said to shareholders, we're going to implement a new $3 billion share buyback program. So on top of what we've been doing, um, we've instituted a new program. So the yield and the share buyback program is showing them that we have confidence in our ability to generate cash. We've been a 
cash-generating machine. You are that, and I know, and uh, that's been the theme of, of Dow, and it's been dead right ever since the stock was in the 20s. You told us that you loved it, but you put through some price increases. Are the price increases sticking, and should we be worried at a certain point about demand destruction? Prices have gone up, but they've gone up because the input costs are up, and oil price really does clear the market in petrochemicals because most of the producers are based in oil. We're based in natural gas. 85% of our input costs are natural gas. And even though natural gas is up, the spread between oil and natural gas is still very wide, near historic levels. And so that gives us an advantage. And that's because we're in cost advantage positions. Canada, the United States, Argentina, the Middle East. Even in Europe, we have some flexibility to crack LPGs that are crackers in Europe. And that gives us a little bit of an advantage over the typical European producer. Now, when I listen to that, I think about the buyback, the dividend, what you just said. And then I look at all these stocks that younger people bought and how much money they lost, whether it be these big, you know, the Warby Parkers, the Rent the Runways, the Albers. I don't want to pick on it, but, you know, and I say to myself, do they not know what this Dow is up to? For instance, I'm reading a speech that you gave at Sanford Bernstein today where you're talking about building ethylene and derivatives cracker complex in Fort Saskatchewan, Alberta, that has zero carbon emissions. Now, I would have told you a few years ago, that's a fairy tale. Well, it's based on hydrogen and carbon capture technology. And one of the things I'm proudest of with the team is through COVID, what we did was we developed a whole ESG strategy to be net zero by 2050. That but means you're a carbon company. We're going to take our scope one and two emissions from big production facilities like that to zero. And we're going to do it by doing something that's kind of unique to our industry is take the byproduct tail gas off the cracker, convert it to hydrogen, strip the CO2 out, and fuel the cracker with hydrogen. And we will be... It's a circular... It's a circular system. And so what we'll do is we'll have a little bit higher cost, but in Canada, and the reason we decided to go to Canada first is Canada has a price on carbon. So I can recover the higher cost of stripping out the CO2 with the price on carbon... Cool. And the government is obviously offering some incentives for new technologies to decarbonize. But didn't industrialists fight uh, carbon pricing? They fought carbon tax. Right. And there's a difference. Okay, explain a that. A carbon tax it becomes a cost to me that I then end up passing on to the consumer. And it, it is inflationary. A price on carbon creates a market mechanism that allows me to recover that cost and that creates a return for an investor. So in my view, if you really want to decarbonize, you want the capital market to play. We want to pull. There's a trillion dollars or more of available capital out there, and it wants to move into ESG funds. So if we create a policy around setting a cap on emissions and a price on carbon, then you can attract people into the market. The industry can do this. The technology is available today to be able to make the hydrogen from these byproducts. The obvious question I have is, we have a country that, with a president that is very ESG concerned. Why isn't this done in the United States? Why can't you and the White House work hand in hand to get this done? They have done some very good things. So through the infrastructure bill, they have addressed creating eight hydrogen carbon capture hubs in the U.S. Oh, so my, my hope is as we prove this out in Canada, that as soon as we've done it, we can come to the U.S. and do the investments here. But we do need to get carbon capture infrastructure in. 
So the other thing that Canada had is existing carbon capture infrastructure, okay. which we could tap into. And that means we could move quickly to do that project. Right now, we need to build that capability in the U.S. And, and eight carbon capture hubs, we've looked at this through the American Chemistry Council, which is our industry association. Eight of those hubs would cover about 85 percent of the petrochemical production in the U.S. Well, do you find it odd that that's what we talk about now versus a few years ago when we just talked about polyethylene pricing? And work? <laughs> no, honestly, I mean, you didn't get in the business to do this, but you've been magnificent about this. You've been the industry leader. It's, I think it's more an opportunity. It's a challenge, for sure, from a climate standpoint, but I think it's a huge opportunity for growth. Think about this way. Um, if you can take plastics, which is already the lowest carbon footprint material, and you can take its carbon footprint to zero, and then you can address the recycling issues and the waste issues. Which I know you have. That would be another show because I know taken you care it, passionately. You've, you've taken the most sustainable material and said, hands down, best product. Today, 40, over 400 brand owners have targets for post-consumer recycled material in their content. They've created a demand pull for that material, and we're seeing premiums in the market for that. So there are going to be decent return projects here. They need a little support. They need a policy change around this price on carbon, and I think it needs to be a market price. And if you'll let me, the market price is important. Europe has a system that creates a market price on carbon. Canada has one. China's developing one. If we develop one and we have a market-related price on carbon, it's more logical that those global prices would harmonize and create a level playing field. And you don't have to have something like a border adjustment mechanism or a tax to drive the change. You have a market incentive to drive the change. Okay, now the reason we went into this is because a lot of people don't want to buy a stock that makes a lot of money. They want to buy a stock that does good, buy a company that does good, and then makes a lot of money. And I need you to know that about Dow, because this is not the same old Dow. This is a company that cares and is making a lot of money. We covered that at the beginning. And then we went into things that I know many of you care far more about than dividends and buybacks. Maybe you get it all with Dow. Jim Fitterling, Chairman and CEO of Dow. Thank you so much, Jim, for coming to the show. Great to be here. May have money's back after the break. Coming up, inflation is running fast as a deer. Can this agro play keep a pace? Kramer plows for answers next. Every earnings season is confusing in its own way. Wall Street's always making premature judgments and then rolling them back a few days later. As I said at the top, it's really difficult to react, snap, and be right. Just look at what happened to Deere, the Kramer fave farm equipment maker. See, back on the morning of May 20th, when the market was still really ugly, Deere reported a seemingly mixed quarter. And then the stock plummeted 14% in a single session. I mean, this is a great American company. Of course, it was a terrible week to report anyway. This one hurt for me because I've told you to buy Deere all year. I liked it even more when Russia invaded Ukraine, because one of the perverse consequences of the war is that it's created a powerful bull market in all things agriculture. Remember, Ukraine's the breadbasket of Europe, but it's hard to farm in a war zone. So we've got global crop shortages, resulting in major food inflation. Bad news for regular people, but good news to companies that are part of the food chain outside of Eastern Europe. So even though the market was truly awful, even though there were some macroeconomic concerns weighing on the 25% of Deere's business that's related to construction and forestry, 
I thought they'd be able to tell a good enough story to send the stock higher, not lower. Instead, the stock collapsed. But a funny thing happened while we were on vacation last week. Deer stock caught on fire, running even harder than the rest of the market. And it was a good week. The darn thing rallied for five straight days, finishing last week at $360 and change. That only a few bucks from where it was trading before the quarter. Nearly the whole post-earnings meltdown was erased within one week. So tonight we're taking a closer look at what happened. A closer look at the situation because it's important to figure out why Deer stock reacted so negatively to the quarter in the first place and why it has rebounded just as hard once Wall Street started feeling more upbeat and, well, I think you can go much higher. I think this one's an important bellwether, not just for farm equipment. The crazy action in Deer stock, like the action of Microsoft's this morning, can tell you a lot about the temperament of this market and how it's changed. First, let me give you some background. Like I said before, I recommended Deer at the very beginning of the year because this is a textbook real company that makes real stuff and sells at a profit, reasonable valuation. When the market was breaking down in January and February, Deer was grinding higher. When Russia invaded Ukraine and the averages took a beating, Deer broke out to new all-time highs. But when things got very bearish in April and May, as the Fed started talking about the need for 50 basis point double rate hikes to wipe out inflation, Deer stock took a beating. While they get 75% of their business from agriculture, very much in bull mode, the rest is construction and forestry, which could take a real hit if we go into a Fed-mandated recession. And, it, it, and it's a bad enough hit that it could hurt the stock, uh, really inform the price of the stock. Still, Deer was able to defy the gravitational pull of a bad market through November, uh, from November through mid-April, and look, even now, the stock's still up more than 5% for the year. Not the top, but a very interesting level. Let's explore why I think that. What happened with the earnings report two weeks ago that caused the thing to implode? Well, first off, the headline numbers were actually good. Deer did report a meaningful top and bottom line beat. 11% revenue growth translating to 20% earnings growth. That's great. See, but when you drill down and look at the revenues for each segment, all three came in weaker than expected. Overall revenue beat came from a one-time gain, a $326 million investment remeasurement from a transaction Deer did with Hitachi. That was confusing for people. And while the 20% earnings growth was very impressive, a lot of that's because Deer bought back $1.23 billion worth of stock during the quarter. So fewer shares equals more earnings per share. Of course, the buyback's one of the main reasons I've been recommending the stock. We like companies that return capital to shareholders. But when you get a quarter that's on the fence like this one, the bears love to cry financial engineering. And that's what people were saying. When you put the earnings per share aside and look at the operating profit, it was up only 9% year-over-year, slightly lower than the overall revenue growth, which means Deere's facing some margin erosion here as its costs grow faster than its sales. Nobody likes that. Like everybody else, they've got an inflation problem, although it's hard to imagine that coming as a surprise to anyone who hasn't been living under a rock. But the real reason the stock got hit was the guidance. For the whole company, Deer only gives you explicit guidance for two line items, net income and cash flow from operations. And they only give you those forecasts for the full year. While management raised their net income forecast, a lot of that has to do with it. Hitachi remeasurement, and much of the rest is from a lower effective tax rate. Nobody likes that. At the same time, Deer lowered their full year cash flow from operations forecast pretty substantially. Everybody hates that, as they need more working capital throughout the year. So in other words, Underneath was a lot of stuff that people didn't like at all. How about Deer's individual segments? Well, they didn't change their revenue forecast, and they actually raised their operating margin forecast for construction and forestry business, the one that everybody was worried about. All told, this was an okay if unspectacular quarter. So then we've got to say, well, why the heck did the stock fall 14% in response? 
We'll look at the analyst reaction. You saw tons of firms provide mostly positive commentary in the numbers, even as they cut their price targets generally from the mid to high 40s, 400s to the low 400s. This is something we keep seeing. We see it constantly after big market-wide meltdown. The price targets are too high because everything's already come down. But the analysts like to wait until they have a news peg, like an earnings report, before they cut those targets, regardless of whether the earnings are good or bad. And that got that was really how Deere got in the crosshairs. Ultimately, I think the expectations got very high for Deere going into the quarter because everybody knows about the crop shortage. So when the company reported a fine quarter, the bulls were hoping for a blowout. They didn't get it. They dumped the stock. So what in the world turned things around last week then, allowing Deere to erase nearly all of its losses and give you a great entry point? First, obviously, when these guys reported two weeks ago, the market was horrible. Then last week, we had the best rally since November of 2020. It was a natural for the stock to get some love. Second, Deere held an analyst day last Thursday, and it cleared things up. While there weren't any major announcements, management spoke in depth about their vision for the future, while also giving a detailed look at a lot of cool technology. In short, Deere presented a compelling long-term story and stressed that their current supply chain problems really are short-term in nature. Maybe you asterisk them. Third, maybe most, maybe most important, people circled back and reassessed Deere's quarter. For example, the company's director of corporate economics, Kantaya Barr, gave you an incredibly bullish outlook for large agricultural equipment sales. Talk about how farmers will be flushed going into 2023, and they'll desperately need new machinery because their current stuff is getting old. That was the bull thesis. They didn't even tell it when they reported the quarter. Listen to this, quote, Order books for the remainder of the current fiscal year are mostly full, and we already see signs of strong demand for model year 23 equipment. Plus, the head of investor relations said Deere would be able to really ramp up production in the second half. Also good news. All the things we thought were happening really are. It's just that they didn't tell the story the right way. That's so much. There's so much good here that I'm stunned Deere's stock was even down at all. But they had a bad presentation problem and people ran from it. Bottom line, Deere's doing just fine. They should come on the show because you can now get this stock for just 15.5 times earnings, which I fight. I just think it's absurd. So you got my blessing to buy it tomorrow morning. Joe in New York. Joe. Oh, Jim, what's going on? Ah, how much? How about you? I see, I, I see you're living in my backyard now here in Long Island. Yeah, absolutely. I got the uh, I got the tomatoes planted. I got the irrigation oh. system in. Don't worry, everything's going to oh, come listen. out good. But I little I shaky, a little shaky about the artichokes. Good. <laughs> They're hard to grow. Listen, yeah. uh, I decided to follow your mantra about buying stock, which. Uh, which did things as opposed to maybe doing yes. things. I, I invested in uh, in Cummins Engines about three or four months ago, and I just noticed that Daimler-Benz entered into a contract with them to uh, to enter into a hydrogen energy play. Uh, I I just wanted to get some feedback. In, in your opinion, you think it's worthwhile to increase my uh, my investment in this particular corporation? Okay, Cummins is a great... American industrial company whose stock has come down to where it yields 2.74% and is selling at 12 times earnings, which, frankly, I'm going to say is ridiculous. This is not some fly-by-night software-as-a-service company for the, uh, I don't know, sausage industry. It's a real company making real things, paying real money, and great technology. I want them to come on the show, and I want you to own it. Let's go to Stuart in my home state of New Jersey. Stuart. Hey, Booyah, Jim. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing all right. How about you? I'm doing good. My question for you, Jim, is on LiveNet. Uh, stock symbol 
LTHM. My question for you, Jim, is Goldman Sachs recently down, uh, has been talking about the price of lithium going down. Uh, they basically said 10% this year. Right. And then falling another 72% to 16,000 a ton by the end of 2023. So my question for you is I bought it recently, and I guess the question is do you think I should hold it or take my lickings and get out? I read that Goldman piece, and I said to myself, that guy's a smart fella. It, it, it was a very good piece, and therefore it does make me worried. The stocks have had a big run. I'm in agreement with Goldman. They've gone too far. Uh, and I'll tell you who else thinks that. Elon Musk. And I don't want to be on the wrong side of that guy. All right. Earnings season can be confusing. Case in point, one of the great American companies, Deere, reports, and everybody gets confused. And it was such a buying opportunity. But you got my blessing tomorrow morning to get some. Now we got much more man money ahead, including my exclusive with a company you might not know that you've got to know. It's called Accelerate Energy. Could the newly public LNG infrastructure stock help put some profits in your portfolio? I'm talking to CEOs. Then have the facts changed for the CEO dev? Facts changed for the homebuilders. I'm digging into a controversial group. You might be surprised what I've come up with. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Even though the IPO market has spent the last five months in a coma, we still get the occasional new deal, and some of them are actually good. Now, you got to be pretty confident to take your business public in this environment. For example, on April 1, I recommended Accelerate Energy, the liquefied natural gas infrastructure company that's the third largest IPO of 2022. I am a big believer in the liquefied natural gas export business and anything that facilitates it. Doesn't hurt that Accelerate has real sales and real earnings. Plus, because the market's so hostile to new issues, I thought you were getting a very good deal on the stock. Sure enough, since Accelerate's come, uh, rallied from 24.20 to 29, uh, 29 and change, actually, that's 21% gain. Hey, S&P's down 2%. So tonight, we're going to go back to the well, take a closer look with Stephen Kobus. He's the president and CEO of Accelerate Energy, whom you know I'm excited about, who happened to ring the opening bell this very morning, get a first-hand read on his company's prospects. Mr. Kobus, welcome to Mad Money. Thanks, Jim. Please have a seat. All right. If I had to design a company that would be right for this environment, I would, I'd pick a company that could help bring LNG from where it is, I mean, uh, Natural gas awareness to where it's most needed, particularly places that might even be captive to a very aggressive, bad country like like the Russians. Uh, that's accelerated energy. I mean, this you're in the catbird seat, sir. Jim, thanks for that. We are excited about where we've grown this company over the past 19 years, and there is, I can tell you, a lot more awareness of energy security right now. Well, guarantee it. But what I need to know is, you have things called. And this is the first time on floating storage and regasification units. You call them FSRUs. Tell people what they do, how many you have, and can you get a lot more? <laughs> Jim, they are, they're big. They're like 900, 950 feet long specialized ships that serve as floating import terminals. So we use them all over the globe to help people who don't have LNG get access to LNG. We've got 10 of them. It's about 20% of the global fleet, and we are busy deploying them and, yeah, would be uh, always looking to increase our presence. Okay, so we may have 100 years' worth of natural gas in our country, blessed with it. How does Accelerate Energy play a role in giving it to countries that don't have a lot? You know, the difficulty is you need specialized infrastructure. Right. Your viewers know LNG, it's super chilled, minus 159 Celsius, super cold. 
somebody's got to warm it up and send it into the system as just high pressure gas, natural gas, and that's what we do. But in the past, everyone needed, you know, billion, billion and a half land-based facilities uh, yeah, right. oh. to do it. And this is cheaper and faster. Okay, so uh, if I am a country in Europe that is getting uh, natural gas from Gazprom, it is possible that in some way I can get accelerated energy to make it so I'm, I might be able to not be hostage to the Russians. We are glad that we provide alternatives. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, I was in Helsinki, and we actually signed a deal with GasGrid Finland uh, to provide natural LNG into Finland and Estonia. The very next day, Gazprom cut off Finland of their supplies of natural gas. But look, that FSRU is going to be able to provide 5 billion cubic meters a year that's as a capacity. Lot. It's more than those two countries need. Well, that's incredible. Now, you are uh, Bangladesh, Brazil, uh, Italy, Israel, Turkey, all these countries? We, we've delivered into those countries. We've opened up markets all over the world. Bangladesh is a great example. They were getting no LNG. Uh, now we're supplying 25% of their natural gases flowing across two of our FSRUs. Okay, so how many more ships do you need? Is each ship possible, uh, profitable? And can you be a, the, you know, a facilitator of us to them, so to speak? It is the critical enabler for energy security. For the, let's not forget the energy transition to Jim, okay. because it is important for both uh, backstopping renewables we're aware of that. It's also important for giving uh, energy security to countries like Finland and Estonia. And uh, yes, it is critically important and people understand it. Has the president called you in, talked about this? We've been supportive of the U US EU task force on energy security and support their uh, goals in Europe. I think that's great, but uh, has the White House called you? Because I think you know more than they do about this. <laughs> we. Uh, there has been interaction, and okay. our our team has been supportive of the efforts. I mean, geopolitically, you may be one of the most important companies ever to visit Man Money. You know, it's interesting. We we do have an outsized importance in these countries. Uh, we've been successful in those emerging markets you've talked about for years, and it's because we're just this critical linchpin for a country's energy reliability and energy security. Now, people say, well, how much money can you make doing this if you only have these 10 ships? I mean, you need obviously many more. Each one probably costs a great deal of money. Can you make money each time you get a new one? I would say that redeployment risk and deployment of these new asset class, if you've got this track record, if you've built this world-class reputation, uh, it should be something we can achieve. Well, I got to tell you, I think that for people who want to be involved, who recognize the perils of the world today and know that we have natural gas and you can get it to other other places. Well, this fellow, Stephen Kobos, president and CEO of Accelerate Energy, has so much information you can read about. You can learn about this. And if it's right for you, I think you should buy it. Man, money's back after the break. Stick around. Man, make a suggestion. I would stay with him. The lightning round is coming up next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? Dad, the lightning round comes to start with Stephen Jordan. Steve. Yes, sir. I've got aerospace, rocket labs, USA, 
I see your aerospace and I give you Raytheon Technologies, which makes money, does good things, returns capital. Come on, we got to step up our game. Ron in Wisconsin, Ron. Jim, Family booyah from Kenosha, Wisconsin. I love Kenosha. Give me something. Give me something to work with. First time in a long time learning about Joby Aviation for a Huh? Joby Aviation? Joby? I mean, we have flying cars? You think it's time for flying cars? Holy cow, I got stuck on that. Let's go to Allen in Nevada. Allen! Hi, Jim. The second time caller, now a member of the club, and I also attended your monthly meeting today, and it was awesome. Thank you so much, man. My friend Bowers asked me said the same thing. Thank you. What's going on? Tell me what you think of a Legion travel company, the, the budget kind of airline based out of uh, I'd rather be an Expedia. I'd rather be an Airbnb. Let's go with one of those two, okay? They're making a lot of money. They're doing good things. I mean, need to go to Joe in Ohio. Joe. Jim, how you doing? I am having a good time. How about you? We got the conference call today at 12. It was great. What's going on? Hey, what do you think about the trade desk? It was up to like a... I don't know. Okay, here's what I'm doing. I'm working on two things. I'm saying, listen, we got to avoid the companies that are that are losing money. Then we got the special category companies that are just too expensive. Trade desk, good good company, but it is too expensive for this tape. Just the way it is. I need to go to Petra in Connecticut. Petra! Hi, how are you? I'm doing okay. How about you, Petra? I'm great. I love listening to you every morning. Oh, thank you. Carl and David. They're funny guys. It's so interesting. They are. They are. Well, thank thank you. That means a lot because it's it's a tough show to do. It doesn't look like it was really, really hard. (laughs) So what's up? What's up? So I have a small position in Cosmos Energy, and I have a little bit more money that I'd like to invest, and I'm wondering if that's a good thing. Let it come down a little. There's a move to try to – the oil stocks are going to be under, I think, some pressure here. Because people are seeing that they've moved too much for zoning technology. That is just going to be one of those rotational things. They'll come back to it. Daryl in Tennessee. Daryl. Hey, Jim. Uh, Daryl Flowers here calling from Nashville. Glad to hear you got your uh, garden put in. Yeah, it's, uh, com- it's, it's, uh, it's looking pretty good. What's up? Hey, uh, quick shout-out to Soro Jacob Flowers, my one-day-old grandson, born in the island of Japan into the well, U.S. I'll Navy. I'll see you that, and I'll give you a birthday shout-out to Regina Gilgan's mom. There you go. Nice. See you and raise you. Okay? Let's go to work. Okay. What's up? Speaking a little upstart, uh, anything in that last earnings announcement to make you think I, I it's not like a good takeover? I didn't like the loans on the balance sheet. If it gets rid of the loans on the balance sheet or makes me convinced that they're good, then all is forgiven and I'm cool with it. Mike in Florida. Mike. How you doing, Jim? I'm doing pretty well. I really good dinner last night. I to Saul. How you doing? Well, I'm okay. I'm okay for right now. I'm just trying to figure out is Hertz worth buying. Yeah, because this guy Steve sure is the real deal. He will not tolerate anything other than excellent performance. He's one of the toughest guys I've ever dealt with. I like that. It hurts, and that's why that stock is a buy. We're not done. Let's go to Nick in New York. Nick. Jim Booyah. Booyah. Hey, um, I just wanted to ask you about Indy Semiconductor. They've had. Con- Consistent beats uh, quarter after quarter. I know, but they should be making a lot of money. Uh, Look, they just should be making a lot of money. I mean, I got companies making a ton of money, and their stocks are still real cheap, too. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, home is where the profits are. 
as uncertainty swirls, Kramer zeroes in on the home builders. Next. Let me play devil's advocate for a moment. The hedge fund playbook says you can never, ever buy the stock of a home builder at the beginning of a Fed tightening cycle like we're at now. Why? Because we know mortgage rates are headed higher, and that means endless earnings forecast cuts for the home builders that will break your heart, not to mention your bank account. You're also never supposed to say this time will be different. Because according to the playbook, those are the five most expensive words in the English language. When you're a grizzled veteran, you know not to be enticed by Lenar, no matter how good they are, which sells at five times earnings and is already down 31% for the year. You don't even bother kicking the tires on Toll Brothers, also at five times earnings. By the time the Federal Reserve finishes butchering the economy, the estimates will have come down so much that you'll probably be paying 20 times earnings for the home builders because their earnings have dropped so much, even if the stocks just stay in the same place. This is supposed to be happening... Every single time. And look, I'm old enough that I hesitate to go against the playbook. We don't have any home building stocks for the charitable trust. But like I said, we're playing devil's advocate here. So let me ask, what if this time really is different and the home builders are different too and therefore viable here? Now, it's not as crazy as it sounds. Humor me. First, there's been a wholesale abandonment of many downtowns and big cities. Work from home turned out to be the real deal. Unless you work for Tesla. People aren't coming back. It's a shame, but it happened. I don't like it, but a lot of people do. Second, this work-from-home ethos took hold so fast that homeowners just can't keep up. That's led to some nasty consequences, including homes that are too expensive for many people to afford. I don't like that. But rents have climbed even more. So buying a house is worth the price, assuming you can afford it. Third, unlike a new car, a new home doesn't immediately depreciate in value the moment you buy it. Of course, that can change, but everyone who's bought a home in the last few years is up huge. Why is that? Because we're supply-constrained. The homebuilders can't put them up fast enough. There's a lot of environmental laws that will let them put them up in a lot of places. And the buyers, they're serious. They're paying an average of $900,000 for a Toll Brothers house. And it, yeah, you heard me, $900,000. It's not like this is fueled by easy money. People are paying 30% cash, while uh, 30, 30% of them are paying cash. And many homes are subject to these kind of strange bidding wars called best and final. Uh, that's right, multiple buyers for new homes. Given the need to create an office, and by the way, the Toll Brothers houses, they can do that for you. Uh, first time in years that there's a new baby boom, thanks to COVID, and a flush bank account by many of the buyers, well, the houses are highly coveted, and interest rates may not change that. Do we really think that higher interest rates will just not shake out any buyers? No, no. Uh, it, they'll certainly cut down some, on some demand, but can the demand be cut in half? That's what the stocks are saying. By three quarters. Some of the stocks are even saying that. Well, there's suddenly become a glut of homes when so many are going best and final right now. You see, I think the home building stocks are pricing in the same old, same old. A typical Fed mandated slowdown, even though this environment is anything but atypical. Anything but typical. The rise of remote work has changed everything. That's one of the reasons Toll Brothers has been such a voracious buyer of its own stock. They see the demographic imperative, and it's easy for them to stick a home office in these new houses. Over the long haul, it's much cheaper than renting or buying an old house and selling out a fortune to renovate. Toll CEO Doug Yearly knows that, which is why he thinks that his own stock is such great value. And you know what? I agree. So here's what I think happens. I believe these stocks will drop again, perhaps when they do, perhaps. And that might be on a statement from the Fed that says they're still seeing signs of, of inflation. I think you got to pounce. See, that could be as soon as the next rate hike. That's right. We'll get more downgrades, maybe even some estimate cuts. But when they come, I'm going to go out on a limb right here. And I'm going to say it's time is right 
to buy the home builders. Gutsy? Absolutely, the source of demand hadn't changed, but not so with work from home. The facts have changed, and you have to change your mind with them. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I probably try to find it just for you, right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. Now. 